0: You're listening to a Sunday service podcast from First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We're a faith community committed to racial justice, a place where we practice a deep and authentic welcome, where we listen deeply to where love is calling us next, and a place where with humility, courage, and compassion, we act for justice in the world. To learn more, please visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org.
1: Good morning. Church has always been a major influence in my life, and as I have grown up in it and become a part of it, it has guided me to become the person who I am today. For me, First View has shown me how to be a caring and kind person. This begun when I was really little. I remember going to RE and learning of this mystical thing called the Rainbow Path. Such values are very important to me and have guided me and given me a uniquely UU way of perceiving the world. The Rainbow Path has taught me that I should believe in myself and others, and to always be kind no matter what, because every person has inherent worth and dignity. This way of understanding the world has helped me to always be open to others and has provided me the courage to be a leader. At my high school, I am involved in many things, but one of my favorite things is student council. Since it is an elected position, I had to run for it. Now, right away, I was scared I wouldn't win. I was scared I wasn't cool enough or wasn't recognizable enough. uh, And I really thought, maybe I shouldn't run at all. But then I had an epiphany. I remembered something that I had learned many years ago. This idea came to me in my time of need almost naturally. The thing that sparked into my head was blue from the Rainbow Path that I should believe in my ideas and act on them. So I decided not to trouble myself with the minutia of high school popularity contests, and instead run my campaign on ideals and values that I wanted to see widespread throughout my school. This approach ended up being much different than many of my peers, who for the most part just used their name recognition and maybe made a few stickers. With the values I learned at church, I was able to create a campaign that actually helped my fellow students. Another lesson I have learned here at First U is the value in community. Church for me has always been a place of community, a place that when I walk into its doors, I am welcomed and I feel accepted and affirmed. I feel like I belong here, and being a part of a living community of amazing people who gather here every Sunday, not just to sing some songs and feel good about themselves, although we do, but to strive towards real justice and change in the world, and it has pushed me to do the same. You have pushed me to do better, to acknowledge my privileges, and to stand up for those who are less privileged than I am, because First You believes in the inherent worth and dignity of and love of all people, and I love First You. Come, let us worship together.
2: Good morning, morning. it's such a joy to be back amongst you. Our theme today is building hope, and I am here to attest that the hope of spiritual communities isn't in the building, it's in the congregation. For one thing, for the past 10 years, I've been the senior minister of a congregation without a building. The Church of the Lord Your Fellowship is a church without walls, which serves thousands of people around the world including over a 1,000 who are behind walls, incarcerated people. We exist only in the relationships, which are forged online, on the phone, in mail, in Facebook, and yet it's a vibrant place full of deep connections and transformation, just like this congregation and every other congregation that I've been in. The hope is in the people. As Ruth mentioned, I served this congregation from 1983 to 1987 as the religious education director. We met then at what is now Shirtikva, the building at 50th and France. I was there for the last year of what would be John Cummins' final year of 23 years of ministry, two years with two different interim ministers, and the first year of Terry and Susan's, Terry Sweetser and Susan Milner's ministry. Some of you were the witnesses as I preached my first sermon. I was so scared. And it was way too complicated and way too dense, as most people's first sermons are. But I was trying to capture in 20 minutes the 29 years I had lived without preaching, and it was tough. (laughs) You were here as I finished seminary and graduated. You wished me well as I headed off to Boston for what would turn out to be a series of jobs at the UUA headquarters and to welcome me back 15 years later when telecommuting became a thing and I could do the work I loved best from the place I loved best. When I came back, it was as if time had sped up, as if one of those cameras that shows a seed becoming a tree in two minutes had filmed the community. Small children I had known were now teenagers and young adults. Some of the folks I'd known as middle-aged parents of the kids in the RE program were now elders showing me pictures of their grandchildren. People I loved had died. Others who were pillars of the day when I was here have died since I returned. Sharon Bishop, Tom and Nancy Atchison, Drew Cummins, to name just a few. People had moved. Married, divorced, come out, transitioned gender, gone to assisted living. When I was the DRE, every meeting we held, and some of you here were on the committee and remember these meetings, somehow involved the space, the fact that our space was inadequate. In my four years, we carried crates across the street to Lynnhurst Community Center where we rented rooms. The youth group met across the street at Channing McKinley's house, That's right, the woman who's now married to a reef mom, Donnie, and the mother of two daughters who are older than she was when I first met her. (laughs) After I left, Ginger Luke came and joined Terry and Susan to serve as the DRE, and some of you had three services. I was relieved to have avoided that. Coming back, it was clear to me that even though many, if not most of the people here, had no idea who I am or was in the church, my love for this community remains strong and clear. This congregation shaped me from a formless lump of aspiration and longing into a grounded, (laughs) joyful religious professional. This congregation taught me about collaboration between lay people and religious professionals In a way that has informed every position I've held since. This congregation, I think, is remarkable in the strong lay leadership, which has been an absolute constant. This congregation saw potential in me that I didn't know I had, could envision the seed that would, the tree that would grow from the seed, because so many seeds have sprouted here and been enabled to grow tall and deep. I think of Christanna Willie McKnight, who was, again, a teenager when I was here, seeming completely indifferent to the worship services where we invented and introduced the rainbow path back in the 80s. And Kristana is now a mid-career minister and a leader in our national movement on the board of the Ministers Association. So many lay leaders who connected here, as Monroe described, with their purpose and their values and went on to live them in the world. Since I've been back, even as I've served elsewhere and not here often, it's been a pure pleasure to watch this congregation continue to grow and thrive with diverse and powerful ministers and ministries to witness the compelling racial justice work, the leadership development, the connections with the communities in which the church is embedded. That work flows so seamlessly from Unity Settlement House which was gone long before I got here, but was in the cellular memory of the place, from engagement in the civil rights struggles of the 60s to the marriage equality work, and I was pleased to be here when we did that series of first marriages after marriage equality came to Minnesota, and so many people joined in marriage, legal marriage. The sanctuary, Movement that I was part of in the 1980s is still at work with the same values the same vision of creating a welcoming and loving place for the marginalized I Probably don't have to tell you that being part of a religious community is increasingly countercultural in the United States It has been for a while in Europe It's amazing to me that I'm on the brink of retirement after 37 years of serving Unitarian Universalism Work I thought at the beginning might last three to five years. (laughs) What has held me in place is the love for particular people who I know, who are with me, and the steadiness of our longing for what isn't always right there, but which I can still see in Unitarian Universalism. The longing for community grounded in love, grounded in courage, grounded in willingness to struggle to create the world we long to live in. This longing is expressed in our UU principles, in our worship services, in our relationships with one another, in our radically imperfect but still profound attempts to be the people we long to be. Together, living in the longing, we build hope.
3: So when I was asked uh, about speaking today, I really had to think about what I would say. I'm a CFO, and writing is really not my strength. (laughs) I know that about myself. Ask me about numbers or charts, and my eyes light up. (laughs) So I reached out to Rev. Ruth, because that's what I call her. And she suggested that I speak about my work as treasurer for the board and what it takes spiritually and financially to keep an organization healthy. And as it turns out, something unplanned happens that gives you food for thought. The best part of this little story was that Rev. Ruth was there to witness it. It was an easy-going board meeting, and I was going over a flat, uh, cash flow chart of the building project. Uh, This is something I really geek out over. (laughs) And at this point, the non-finance people at the board meeting are wondering, when is he going to (laughs) stop? We discuss the high-level details of all the changes that are planned for the building. We then move the conversation to the year-to-date operating expenses for the church. I know, they were really excited about that. (laughs) However, it is these types of conversations that are absolutely necessary to maintain the financial health of the church. There is a level of spirituality that occurs when we have these conversations. Your board recognizes that we have a common goal of having a financially healthy church so we can ask tough questions without disrespecting each other. There's a spirit in these conversations that says, remember, We are here for each other and for the congregation. The same spirit allows us to talk about living out or living into our visionary goals, such as racial equity. These can be tough conversations, and I believe Rev. Ruth witnessed the spirit of love when this topic was discussed. The focal point of the conversation was how, as a board, can we ensure that we are living out this vision? We also recognize that none of us have the magic elixir to reach our visionary goals. I left the meeting thinking about how I hoped that these types of conversations never stop. I also hope that the renovations to this building allows us to have more members that want to live live into our visionary goals. And then I couldn't help but to think back, excuse me, So when my family and I joined the church about 15 years ago, we came here with hope that our children could find a place to grow and be nourished. We also hope that we can meet other families that shared some of our values. Looking back... We were able to realize both of those aspirations, and now I'm hoping that whatever your aspirations are from this church are achieved. May we all give generously to this place.
4: Oh, my people. (laughs) Oh, oh. Uh, my glasses are fogging up here. Um, I hope I can do this. So, um, greetings to you all. And and also, uh, thanks to all my First Universalist colleagues. Uh, um, In absentia to Reverend uh, Jen Crow and to Justin Schroeder, and to Karen Hutt, and to Arif Mamdani. And uh, of course, thanks to Ruth and Meg, and to Kevin and Monroe for their words. Um, So once upon a time, I saw you for the first time in a group photo. It was nearly a quarter century ago. I sat in a Seattle apartment and opened a hefty package that arrived in the mail. Inside was your search packet. On the front of the big loose-leaf binder, there was your group snapshot taken on July 25, 1993, You've just marched in procession from your former church site at 50th and Girard to here. A great crowd of you are gathered on the DuPont steps. You're spilling over left and right and center, and you're looking jubilantly victorious, despite your possibly aching feet. (laughs) Looming behind you at the entrance to your new house of worship, are those four great columns, rising like the four noble truths, the four directions, the four gospels, the four Mayan giants who hold up the celestial roof. It looks like you've arrived somewhere solid and ancient. So then a year or so later, once upon a time, I stood up here for the very first time and saw you from this perspective. It was Sunday after Labor Day, 1997. It felt like a a once-upon-a-time week. Mother Teresa and Princess Di had both died that preceding week. Those two archetypes, the humble servant in sandals in the street with the dying and the shining princess untouchable in her high castle, the week felt large, as did this room. To me, that morning, I think I said as much. I recall how it was to gaze out across this sanctuary for the first time and how I had to scan far north and south to take you all in. And if I recall, I commented on this out loud, saying something like, this room is very wide. LAUGHTER perhaps this says something about the breadth of community it can hold the range of souls it can include and embrace i may also have have said that this room is very deep floor to ceiling so there's ample room for searching the depths of spirit if we're vulnerable enough open enough to welcome such exploration And I probably said something about the great stained-glass windows that surrounded us here then, inherited from the synagogue, stained-glass scenes depicting journeys and struggles of an exiled people moving through wilderness toward the mysterious something, that evolving longing and possibility we sometimes call home. When Reverend Rivas and I arrived here in August 1997, you'd been through some years of leadership challenges which had required a heap of energy, and in some ways you, had, you felt like you were just beginning to settle in here. One hot August day, Ann Franchick and a team of a dozen others brought cleaning supplies and snacks and spent a day scrubbing these pews. They even took toothbrushes to those little stars of David on the end of the pews, making each point of each star shine. And you had a space team. Chuck, you remember this. (laughs) You had a space team, members of the congregation methodically walking through this building, trying to take the long view. What could the function of each room and hallway in this church house be? Because you were committed to making this place expressive of who you are, A people of open minds, open hearts, and open hands, as Reverend John Cummins would say, even as you lived into the unknown. There's our future. (laughs) You wanted to, as they say in the world of theater and improv, occupy your space. (laughs) Occupy your space is shorthand for principle of stagecraft and performance. And it comes easily to mind today because the Reverend Meg Riley is with us. And one of Meg's many gifts is her gift and enthusiasm for improv, and for what it can teach us about staying in the moment, about relationship, and about risk. Occupy your space is one of those models for actors and improv artists. It means claim your space, don't hold back. Once you take the stage, you can't not be part of the scene. So everything you do will speak of who you are. So fill that space with actions that reveal your character. Live in it generously all the way to the edges and beyond. As I see it, that's what your adventure here has been about. Your first capital campaign 20 years ago was when you let in the light. You created the atrium and the Cummins Chapel Installed the elevator, upstairs restrooms. You watched pieces of the orange shag social hall carpet go out the door, <laughs> along with some affectionate and hilarious comments about what the carpet had been through. And the stained glass windows, which had begun to buckle and flake, you removed with care and replaced with this glass. Not because you didn't love the old stories the stained glass told, but because you had become those sojourners finding your way through a new wilderness and you needed a clear view of what's outside your own window. It's about the building, but it's not about the building. Occupy your space. Later there was more, Reverend Schroeder arrived, your commitment to racial and economic justice gained muscle and you moved even more fully into 3400 DuPont, expanded your offices, brought more beauty into spaces for children and youth and even by happy necessity extended this sturdy setting for a flourishing choir. Now, your next renovation, I understand, will include replacing this sanctuary carpet. OMG. (laughs) I will feel a small twinge of nostalgia, and your wedding officiants will need to find another way to remind the wedding party where to stand in rehearsal. No more can we say to the bride, your place is to the left of the little oblong stain. (laughs) And to the other bride, that's your spot really (laughs) it will be fine (laughs) you know how to honor the cycles of life and I'm sure you will give this carpet a good goodbye (laughs) it's about your space but it's not about your space it's about playing your intention that's another slogan from improv and theater play the intention They say the key to character is always intention. They say when we're clear what our character wants and our actions flow organically from that, we can flub our lines or drop the script and still play the scene. Words will come because intention will carry us. For instance, this one. We're a community of faith drawn together not by doctrine, but by our intention to be a people of open minds, hearts, And hands living in grateful relationship with that sustaining, transforming power some call God and we often call love. We choose an intention then give ourselves to it. Stage life and faith life have this in common. We live inside a mystery and what is faith but making our best guess about the nature of this cosmic drama and then playing it out as fully as we can and risking that our best hope is the best hope. One more thought on the improv theme, and that is nothing gets us like a love story. It seems we never tire of seeing a great love story unfold, not a facile, fluffy romance, but a robust encounter, meeting, struggle, renewal, And what is that pull to a love story, but our longing to see connection found and suffered for and won? And how deep is that thirst in us? In her book, Sweet Dreams in America. Skip to page. Our universalist heritage. (laughs) We'll get to the sweet dreams. (laughs) My sweet dream is that I will have the pages in order. (laughs) <laughs> our universalist heritage, despite our inevitable blind spots, has been a heritage dedicated to love story, insisting, sometimes against great odds, that the heart of the matter is the human heart. It's the root of our justice work. Historically, we've said we won't sit still for a drama whose main theme is judgment or separation. Or exclusion we will have embracing and reconciliation we will have the interdependent web we have chosen love story and we want no one excluded from the final embrace it's everybody or nobody the old Universalists used to say since we'll all be stuck with each other in heaven we'd better practice getting along on earth (laughs) we don't talk about heaven these days but we do talk about beloved Community, which could be heaven enough. Be loved. Community. So we're in this together, and God knows it's improv. Scenes, characters, challenges change, intention holds. In each decade, each century, where a past script restricts the possibilities of love, we can. Rework that script, even set it aside and create the scene out of our best hunch. A community of faith, says Reverend Dr. Galen Gingrich, is a place of constant beginning. It's like that other kind of improv called jazz. In her book, Sweet Dreams in America, (laughs) Sharon Welch, says playing jazz depends on musicians' willingness to listen to one another and go where no one's been before. In jazz, she writes, there are no winners or losers, pain isn't denied, ecstasy isn't avoided, and everyone gets a chance to play their story. Moving to a jazz model of being together, she says, changes what we hope for. It means giving up our hope for certain progress and victory it means hoping instead for resilience and companionship. Heaven enough. And like democracy, our religious way is precious, destructible, and costly. Liberal religion is not free, it requires our presence, our care, and our money. There is no trickle-down from any parent church. We are the whole trickle. (laughs) Today, I am here with these others to say thank you for being as generous as you can be, for keeping this collective miracle strong, for occupying your space, for playing your intention, for keeping it a love story. I am prepared to marvel at where your vigor, your resolve, and your holy hope will take you, you who are tomorrow's once upon a time. Blessed be and amen.
0: Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting our ministry. Text FIRSTUNIV, that's F-I-R-S-T-U-N-I-V, to 73256 to make your gift. If you are able to join us in person for Sunday worship, we'd love to see you in church. To learn more, visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org.